Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I don't know who needs to hear this, probably a lot of you, but if it feels like online fraud attempts and successes are increasing, you're not alone. It feels like almost every conversation I've had with fraud fighters in the last several weeks It's either been to tell me about a new and terrifying new form of fraud, whether it's refund fraud or ID theft or payment fraud, or to gut check and say, hey, is everyone else seeing a lot of fraud or is it just me? That seems to be the theme. And I've always said that when I identify patterns, you know, I mean, once a fraud analyst, always a fraud analyst, right? So when, you know, do trend analysis and identify patterns in conversation topics, then that makes a good podcast episode. So I thought that I would dive in a little bit today on the multiple reasons. There's not just one uh, that would make it so much easier. (laughs) Gone are the days when there's only one reason why fraud is up, right? Like, oh, there was a big data breach or, you know, there was a big this or that, like that used to be the thing. Oh no, it's a death by a thousand paper cuts. But I'm going to go through some of the top reasons why I see fraud increasing and just being more in volume as well as sophistication. And some of them might be things that you already know or knew, but maybe forgot. Others may not be things that you've thought of. So I also know that a lot of people's leadership is asking, why is it increasing? Why is it worse? And so hopefully this list can give you a few reasons to provide them. And I mean, it really depends on the type of business you're in. Some of these will be more applicable than others, whether you're on the bank and financial institution side or fintech, or you're on the merchant side and e-commerce and marketplace. But I tried to group them as best as I could. And it's not like there's just one type of fraud that's growing, right? It's not like it's only payment fraud for online companies or only identity theft for loans and other banking products and credit cards and auto loans and home mortgages and all of that. I mean, I just saw an article this week that said that Canada has been having a huge influx in fraud where TransUnion is estimating that over half or right around half of all uh, consumers and adults in Canada have had their identity stolen, whether it's a lot of it's for auto and home mortgages, but auto loans and home mortgages. But it's also just a mix of all kinds of types of fraud, whether it's credit card identity theft, where credit cards are being opened in someone's name, or stolen credit cards or account takeover. And it seems like Canada has Canadians have kind of gone unscathed for fraud for quite a while. It's probably because they're always seen as nicer than people in the US. And honestly, that's usually the case. And in my, it's not always the case, but you know, I uh, definitely have a handful of friends and clients that are in Canada who I really enjoy working with. I don't think that fraudsters have been, you know, 
laying off of them because of that. I think it's, you know, the economy and it's a lot of other reasons, but it's just one more example of fraud growing out and up and just all over the place, growing into new you know, geographies, right, for new victims uh, and all of that. So it doesn't matter if it's, you know, like I said, identity theft, synthetic fraud, whether it's account takeover at the banking side or e-commerce side, whether it's, you know, targeting vulnerable consumers through all kinds of scams like pig butchering and impersonation scams, romance scams, uh, overpayment scams. It's just rife, right? All over the place. You can barely post anything on an online marketplace that's supposed to be local without getting several messages right away uh, saying, I'll pick this up, but do you use this type of, you know, P2P mobile wallet, or let's take this off off platform and talk about this on text or WhatsApp, all of those things. It's just, it's everywhere, right? For consumers as well as businesses. And then for e-commerce, it's, you know, credit card fraud, it's alternative payments, whether it's buy now, pay later, or, you know, wallets, all of that, they're all getting hit in different ways. Uh, Refund claims fraud is obviously very high on the list. Uh, Patrick Chen and I got to talk a little bit about um, a solution that I've come up with, with a few merchants uh, that is now available on the spec marketplace. And I'm excited about that. But the reason why we created it is because we need something on this side, right? We're just vastly outnumbered. And while the schemes keep changing a little bit here and there, they're very much on par and on theme. And it's been interesting to me to just watch over the last few years, you know, the, the schemes and the type of refund fraud claims that came through to very large companies two years ago are now hitting more you know, medium-sized companies now. And they're also recycling it and all of that. So there's a lot there. And I'm going to actually talk a little bit about uh, why refund fraud in particular is getting so out of hand in a little bit. But like I said, it's all increasing, right? Like not just in cases, you know, but also not just in the numbers, but also in the sophistication, in the level of difficulty to detect it, to be able to prevent it. And it just feels like it's coming from all angles. And I think part of that is because, you know, in most cases, the trajectory has been going up for a long time, like for the last 18 to 24 months. In some cases, for some companies and some banks, it's been since COVID. It's been since 2020, where it's just been slowly and steadily and then sometimes a little bit faster going up. But I just feel like it's been especially noticeable to most fraud fighters that I've talked to in the last four to six weeks. And it might just be that those are the ones that are calling me. Maybe there are some of you that are like, nah, I'm kicking my feet back and you know, there's my feet are up on my desk and I'm just, you know, surfing the internet all day at work. Doubt that. <laughs> uh, but you know, there might be some people, but not anyone I've talked to recently. So like I said, there isn't just one answer for why. Uh, Back in 2013, it was around, I think it was November or so, when the Target credit card breach happened with in-store credit card numbers. And then shortly after, it was the Home Depot credit card breach. And we could see a direct line between, you know, well, it really started before the breach was announced, but, you know, a few weeks before, and then the, that, that was just a crazy, I don't know, it's a crazy time and maybe an episode in itself of, I worked for the trade association at the time. So I uh, knew a lot of waves and a lot of things that were happening before they were announced publicly on all those things, but, you know, finding the point of compromise and, and then waiting for the companies to report it and all of that, you know, there's always a little bit of lead up time, but you know, there was a very clear reason. And even over the last several years, you know, there's been times when specific 
online platforms or companies have had their usernames and passwords breached. And then shortly after that, we're seeing a lot of account takeovers. So we've been able to draw direct lines to things before. And I think we're used to that in a lot of ways. And I remember last year when several people would call me and say, is there a list somewhere? Like what's happening? All of a sudden we're seeing this huge uptick in fraud. And it wasn't a list. The truth is, is that information is being harvested from so many different places in so many different ways that there's not one traceable place. There's not one direct thing. It's a lot of instances on top of each other, as not to mention all of the compiled lists that are, you know, there's all these master lists of data out there from uh, organized crime syndicates and others where they're really patchworking data from different breaches. So, oh, your health insurance was breached. And then, you know, then so there was all kinds of information about you there. And then maybe your, you know, passwords for this online streaming service and that email service and, you know, that online shopping site all get put into one thing and they can really create a profile for you and start to see, oh, there's a pattern in their, in their passwords, right? They have the same numbers in them or they have the same syntax or they have, you know, similar this or that. There's a lot of that and it just, you know, they build off of each other, right? It's not like they just use one list or one uh, data source and then throw it away and then use another one. No, they're all repurposing them. I did an entire episode six months ago about how new credit card numbers are harvested before the new cardholder even gets the credit card. And that's through simple math, essentially, I mean, or maybe not so simple to some of us, Um, but they're math equations of how the banks are figuring out what the new credit card number is going to be for your card. And In a lot of cases, those have been figured out so they can buy lists or even just, you know, buy or not even buy lists, right? Just find garbage lists anywhere of card numbers that were stolen and used up months ago or years ago. And they can figure out, okay, well, oh, this, this one, isn't it? So maybe they've had two new credit cards since and those go through. So they don't even need a data breach anymore. So like I said, there's not just, you know, one answer, but there's a lot of them. So there's a lot of themes I mean, a big one is just the sheer volume, right? There's more humans and more dollars behind it. There was, I won't call him out, but there was a fraud fighter who I remember during the time that we were very aware that COVID relief funds were being stolen. I was talking with a fraud fighter for a large bank and he was saying, you know, this is going to be used as fraud venture capital. And I was like, what do you mean? And I mean, I... (laughs) I understood the concept, but I didn't really understand the term. And what he meant by that was these guys aren't just going to spend all this money, right? It's billions of dollars. In a lot of cases, it's been estimated it's $400 billion just in the US. And there were other countries that were impacted as well. Not as much. And that's a story for another day. Although, you know, there's been, we've had a few episodes on that. And I think there's some breadcrumbs as far as some of the causes and things like that, that you can go sifting through the last 230 something episodes to find. But but anyway, I mean, all of that is done, right? There's nothing we can do about it now, except for, you know, the federal government, I know, is trying to arrest as many people as possible, but that's not everyone. And so, you know, even if 10% of all the funds of the 400 billion were stored away and like, okay, we're going to invest this into infrastructure, whether it's technology, whether it's, you know, humans, whether it's recruiting uh, somebody super smart from Stanford or MIT to build these, you know, massive bots that go undetected or all these other infrastructures, they're investing in that. And I think, 
you know, three years later, we're seeing the results in a lot of ways. So that's, you know, part of it too, right? They're well-funded. We aren't. We know that. That's no secret. They don't have to ask for budget. They don't have to ask, you know, have everything go through a privacy and security review and, you know, wait for engineering prioritization and everything else so they can be faster and, you know, a lot more agile in their approach. So one of the things I was thinking of was just kind of the geographical themes and how the economy plays a part as well as geopolitical. And I've, I think I've talked about this a little bit before, and this is not going to be a comprehensive list, but you know, the, based on different types of fraud or different types of cyber hacking or breaches, you can usually be fairly accurate as to which country those are coming from. For example, in the APAC region, especially, you know, China and other, you know, countries in Southeast Asia, a lot of times those are who's behind the consumer scams, uh, whether that's peg butchering and others. And we know from past episodes that there's a human trafficking component there that is just brutal and really depressing. They also, uh, within e-commerce, are often responsible for reshipping or triangulation fraud, as well as bulk buying and taking advantage of, you know, reselling opportunities because of, you know, market instability and fluctuations between regions. There are some brands and some types of items that can go for two, three, ten times as much in APAC or even in some Latin American countries than they would in other countries. And so oftentimes there's a component of trying to get those items to their country. And while they know that oftentimes retailers are blocking freight forwarders, residential reshippers are still alive and well, whether that is through recruiting mules for work from home scams or family members and other associates uh, that live in Western countries. So, uh, and sometimes those are on stolen payment methods, sometimes they aren't, but oftentimes those are still uh, causing havoc in different ways on retailers. A lot of the most common scams and fraud that comes out of Russia, you know, a lot of phishing, um, business email compromise, ransomware. They are very good at harvesting credentials for account takeovers. I know that last February, when Russia first invaded Ukraine, that's when we saw a huge uptick in uh, account takeovers, draining accounts, whether it was draining accounts for loyalty points or air miles or uh, credits on accounts uh, for travel companies uh, due to COVID, right? You may have booked a hotel or, you know, home share or something like that and been given a credit on your account uh, for that. So the company didn't have to give back the money right away. And those were just getting drained left and right, as well as a lot of other, you know, anything that was digital that could be stolen uh, from legitimate people's accounts. Uh, so those are just some examples from there. And obviously the instability there is causing, you know, impacts on the economy and all of that. I did hear an anecdote though from someone, uh, I believe who was in federal law enforcement who said that prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a lot of Ukrainian and Russian uh, criminals would work together. So the Ukrainians would often write the very technical and sophisticated codes, uh, often that were responsible for ransomware, like, you know, the file attachments that would be open, things like that, malicious, you know, malware, things like that. Well, now they're not really working well together right now. Uh, Russians are having to rely on other creative ways to get access. And one of the most recent and best examples of that is probably the cyber attack that we saw on MGM as well as Caesars, but they didn't get as much headlines, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on who you work for. But 
you know, as I talked about in last week's episodes, the way that the ransomware was able to be, you know, entered into the system was all through social engineering. And by all accounts, the group that, you know, perpetrated the social engineering was uh, American and uh, young, well, Western, I guess, you know, American, Canadian, maybe a few from Europe or the UK, and all, you know, young, younger men under 23, 24. And then the group that was taking responsibility for the actual ransomware has ties to Russia, whether they live there now or not. So that's one example of, oh, okay, well, so we can't get access the same way we used to with sophisticated malware and attachments in phishing emails and spear phishing, business email compromise, etc. Well, we'll get access this way through this group and then we'll split the funds or whatever, however they worked it out. And then in Europe, a lot of the, you know, fraud or scams that come out of there are, you know, often right now it's, you know, because the economy is is stagnant um, and slow. So, you know, we see card fraud, we see banking and consumer scams. Refund claims fraud is growing quite a bit in the UK and in various countries within Europe. I think it's been growing over the last few years, but especially the last six to 12 months, I'm seeing more and more activity on encrypted apps and uh, the, you know, really those cyber criminal forums and things like that, talking about targeting other countries and other geographies, not just the US and UK, and especially for international companies, right? So, hey, we can't hit, you know, this company in the US or Canada anymore, because they have put in new policies or, you know, new ways of being able to track us, but we can use we can attack that company with uh, refund fraud in this country or in that country because chances are they use different systems or didn't pass on the policies or have different leadership or, you know, always taking advantage of silos and uh, communication gaps, whether that's software communication gaps or just in general. And then in the U.S., we're seeing just a lot more fraudsters that are domestic. So many that are younger people, whether it's, you know, a 16 year old or a 26 year old, a lot of them cut their teeth on COVID relief fraud and just experienced the high and kind of the dopamine rush and endorphins that they get from scamming the system or stealing from the man. And a lot of them played video games as kids, right? So if they're willing to spend three hours trying to find the hidden chalice, they're absolutely going to spend that much time trying to figure out how to get around certain systems or all of those things. So all of those together, just from a geographic perspective, is a lot of forces working against all of us with different skill sets and different focuses. Now, like I said, those are some generalizations. There's a lot of you know crossover and other things, but those are kind of the specialties. And that's often what we, you know, what we see from each of those regions. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. 
And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. There's been a couple of episodes recently where we've talked about some of the more sophisticated technology and more sophisticated methods that are being used uh, to target online companies and banks and financial institutions. I mean, if you did not listen to the episode with Nate Carl three weeks ago talking about exploits that are impacting specific types of third-party fraud software, I highly recommend you listen to that. It wasn't intentionally scary, but it was very true. And do you find it? It's been interesting to me to see uh, which companies are reacting or mentioning it in different ways, either trying to discredit me or by quoting myself or Nate in an article in marketing. And I'm, you know, it'll be sent to me by someone saying, aren't but but they're one of the companies that this is happening to the most. I'm one of their clients or I was one of their clients. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. But, you know, if I ain't said nothing, I ain't said nothing. And I'm not saying any company names unless they're the sponsor of the podcast. And that bar is very high. So I won't be saying, you know, calling anyone out. But it's just interesting to me to see how people have handled that. But I mean, if if you doubted how true that information was, maybe, you know, look at the way that some companies have responded to it, I guess is what I'm saying. But, you know, there's also just better bots, right? And we were talking about that in that art, in that conversation as well, whether it's bots or whether it's, you know, anti-detect, things like that. They're able to block a lot of the JavaScript and other signals that are transferred through API from your website to your company or your bank, and then from your bank or company to the third party. And that renders it really difficult to make decisions and to be able to see, are they good? Are they bad? What are their intentions when it just comes in blank, essentially? And there's several articles, even that have been around for a couple years on the clear web or the surface web about bots that will you know go undetected by some of the biggest names in bot detection. That's what's being sold out there, whether it's for purchasing bots like sneaker bots, you know, and maybe they're using their own payment method, but it's still an impact on your brand. Right. Uh, That episode with Jenna at Snipes really comes to mind as far as all the reasons why it was important to her to have multiple layers that were detecting against bots in her system because to not just rely on one company and one system. Because, you know, reselling really broke the relationship that they could have with the end consumer. 
they no longer knew who the end consumer and who the fan was of their items. A third party marketplace did. So that's, you know, it may not be payment fraud, right? But it can impact your business. And then AI. We've been talking about it a lot here and there and just in general. And I feel like AI is the new buzzword for any article now. And I did have high hopes at one point to like put together only one episode on AI and how it's impacting fraud. And that's just not going to happen. But you know, it's obviously creating better phishing emails, better scripts, you know, deep fakes, etc. And even more than that, I mean, I saw an article uh, in the Frank on Fraud blog, I think a month ago or so. So it was a little bit ago. But somebody asked me about CAPTCHA not too long ago when I sent them this article. So I thought I'd mention it here too. And I'll put it in the show notes as well so you can have a quick link to it. But uh, it's actually from the end of August. But it's the headline says AI bots are way better at CAPTCHAs than people. And there was this new study that came out in July that basically says that AI bots crush CAPTCHAs faster and more accurately than humans. So, you know, humans will often, and they did it based on all different types of CAPTCHA, right? Whether it's reCAPTCHA or distorted text or reCAPTCHA image, but the accuracy that humans have is anywhere, depending on the type of, you know, CAPTCHA method, anywhere from 50 to 85% accuracy for humans, right? And it can take anywhere from 3.1 seconds to 28 seconds for humans to, you know, solve CAPTCHA. Well, an AI bot has the lowest amount of um, accuracy they have is 85%. And that's on reCAPTCHA image. It's only 4%, you know, better than the humans, but still that's pretty good. But other than that, everything else is 98% or 96%, 99.8%, 100% accuracy on reCAPTCHA. And they're solving it in like less than a second or in 5.3 seconds versus 28 seconds. So AI bots are crushing CAPTCHA. Anyone who says, you know, we're going to rely on CAPTCHA. And so that's how we know that we don't have any bots. Well, I got news for you. Um, It's not the case anymore. And so those are the things that, you know, really at the end of the day, and this is kind of what goes in with my conversation with Nate too, is that we cannot be relying on some of the same technology that worked and fought the fraud that we had five, six, seven, eight years ago. We just can't. And I get it. You know, it's a real challenge to get more budget and to have your leadership understand that, yes, I know we've only had to buy a new CRM system once in 20 years, right? Or we've only had to get, you know, a new... SaaS system for our devs, you know, once or twice, right? But uh, we in fraud probably need a new solution every five years or some kind of a refresh. I wish that wasn't the case, but that's a whole other conversation about the choices that some solution providers have made to go the route of other SaaS companies where they build a product and they get the product to a pretty good spot for critical mass. And then they just keep duplicating and selling that same product without improving it. The problem is, is in this side of SaaS, if software as a service, we have adversaries out there actively trying to beat those and trying to get around them. And so when companies make decisions not to invest in R&D and research and development, they make decisions not to invest in you know those super passionate people at the beginning who were part of something in a startup when they were building it. A lot of times they leave after an acquisition or uh, an IPO. So it just it's the way that it's structured and it's frustrating. But I will say I've said this before, not all fraud solutions are the same, not even close. I often see many themes of companies that use, you know, solution A 
having so many issues and the same issues as each other and just really having high chargebacks or, you know, high charge offs or things like that versus people who use company B that, you know, is committed to continually improving or they might be in a different stage of their company growth, unfortunately. And so you can take advantage of, you know, them on the come up, knowing that there's a chance that you may have to change again if they are sold to a bigger company that just kind of wants to uh, take it apart for parts or um, coast on what was created five years ago and just do that. And it's very frustrating to me. I feel like it's our job is hard enough uh, with bad guys. And then we have to, you know, we have to rely on third parties. And this is what happens. But I am encouraged. I mean, my conversation with Patrick this week talking about this marketplace that they're creating for fraud fighters, you know, you guys, the people who understand this on the ground so much more to create modules and dashboards and other, you know, products that can be actionable workflows to help other companies. And I just think that's so much more adaptable and faster. And I'm so excited to see some of the products that come out. I've already had some pretty fun conversations with some people that I've, that I just know have the such good product brains. So I've asked permission from Patrick and Nate to uh, share this information with them a bit early. And a couple of them have some really exciting ideas that I am really uh hopeful uh, that when they hit the market, they'll be very helpful to so many other companies. I think that's going to be a really good way of democratizing fraud and, you know, giving fraud fighters their IP and you can own it and you can, you know, have a side hustle for it. You can put your kid through college for it with it, hopefully, but also to be able to be adaptable quickly. And that's where, you know, I see some of the future of fraud fighting going. And I've talked about this so many times, but the fraud as a service marketplace and, you know, sharing information and education and training materials online, just when I think it can't get any bigger, log on to Telegram or Discord or Reddit, and Reddit's gotten better, um, and other, you know, groups like that. And Oh, just it's depressing when I open it sometimes and see, okay, I just kind of want to search around and see what's going on and what the themes are. And it can be, it can almost make you want to give up and just be like, oh my gosh, like nobody has to have work on a ground up, you know, education anymore. No one has to do trial and error for every single fraud ring or every single organized crime group or every single fraudster like they used to. They can just read books and take tutorials and hire someone to do this piece or that piece. And it makes it so much scarier. And it also gives people time to really focus on the aspect of fraud that they're really good at. So if they're really good at figuring out the systems and figuring out how to exploit XYZ company or XYZ solution provider that those companies use, because as I mentioned on uh, the episode a couple of weeks ago, uh, I think it was in the uh, episode talking about, you know, are there really exploits in third-party fraud software? And the answer is yes, but there, you know, I was challenged. And so I, and I know that it may have seemed like I let someone get under my skin and I understand that. And maybe I did, but I think my passion in that episode was more because I just get so frustrated with people who, you know, really claim to have all the answers that don't, or, you know, that are picking apart something that they don't totally understand. But as I said in that episode, it is extremely easy for fraudsters, for anyone to know the type of or the exact fraud solution and the different fraud solutions or risk or KYC products that are in your risk stack. It's very easy for them to know exactly which ones are being used and they know which ones, okay, they're using 
vendor M, well, then I know that we can, you know, do this exploit or we can do this to them because I've tested that on other merchants that use vendor M, et cetera. And that just makes it so much easier, right? And they can start to manipulate networks and consortiums and all kinds of things that are scary. And they're all working together, right? And even though I try my best to facilitate you know, collaboration and so many other people do too. I know Hallie Wyndham has been doing so much on the banking side for collaboration and, you know, about fraud has been working on that as well. And, you know, there's a lot of us out there. There's, you know, a couple of organizations that, you know, work on that as well through their conferences and other things, but it's never going to be as easy as with fraudsters because we can't share as much, right? We can share general themes. We can't share specifics. We can't say, hey, does anyone else have fraud at this address or this IP address? No, uh, that is, you know, we have privacy rules to follow and all of the other things. So makes it a little bit more difficult. <laughs> and then one of the biggest things that um, I just wanted to um, highlight, and this is where I'm going to talk a bit about uh, some of the refund fraud exploits that you know have been hitting retailers quite a bit lately. And it's got a complicated name. I don't know. I think it's more complicated, but this one's probably doing the most damage uh, to, you know, whatever entity holds liability uh, for something and or for a financial loss, I guess I should say. And it's difficult for the company that holds the financial loss to identify you know, and stop where the exploit is because they're in gaps somewhere else in another company. So the technical term, at least the term that I know this by, is multi-system exploit. Other people will call it like supply chain um, exploits, things like that. But I think that that's just a fancy term for taking advantage of the gaps between different companies that rely on each other. Here's a few examples, right? There are, and sometimes it's one specific company that you see over and over again more than others, but there are often insiders and, you know, some weak security at telcos. Um, and, you know, sometimes they're being advertised on Telegram and Discord. Hey, there's a, you know, insider here. There's an any over here for SIM swaps. All you have to do is, you know, send them the phone number and the serial number you want it ported over to. Well, with a SIM swap, there's so much fraud that can be done against other companies, right? It can be huge losses against banks or, you know, financial institutions, high dollar purchases online, cybersecurity and ransomware, they can, you know, verify themselves one time password, you know, all those things where, you know, the assumption has always been, well, if they have their phone, that can authenticate a user. But if there's a specific telco or more than one that is kind of becoming known for having weak security or having people that work for them that can easily make these switches or, you know, having their employee logins exploited and being used by fraudsters to just SIM swap all day long, whatever that is, those losses aren't always, uh, often aren't happening at the telco. They're happening down the line at the bank or at the, you know, marketplace or wherever that threat is. So that's an example of a very common multi-system exploit. Uh, I know for online, anything with social sign-on and mobile wallet purchases, that's just more entities involved in a transaction. And if you exploit uh, or take over the mobile wallet account and make a purchase with an online company, well, then that online company is going to have the liability, even though the weakness or the exploit was 
you know, over at the wallet side or the social sign on side, right? There's account takeover uh, for your, for someone's, you know, Google account or their Facebook or their Twitter. Well, now if they have social sign on for multiple things, now whoever has access to that account can now access all those other accounts that are connected. Two more examples that are very common right now. One is, you know, the ease of how easy it can be in some states, especially in the U.S. And this is true, you know, across um, different in different countries, whether it's passports or other legal documents that can be forged. But then there's also you can just get the real thing. And that's what you know, when I had David Maiman on who I really want to have come on the podcast again, if he's not too busy, he's such a great wealth of knowledge for, you know, cybersecurity research out of Georgia State University. And, you know, he and I talked at great length about how you no longer, fraudsters no longer have to really steal driver's licenses, right? They can exploit how simple it is to get a social security number and then go get a new driver's license and a new name. Or there are some states in the U.S. where it's extremely simple to log onto their website, you need minimal information about a person that lives in their state and say, oh, I moved and I'm going to upload a new picture and I want you to send this you know, new driver's license with my new picture that looks nothing like my old picture uh, to this address out of state and they'll do it. That was happening a lot for COVID, especially for COVID relief funds for unemployment fraud and PVP. It was just rampant, especially in, I think it's five or six states where it's very easy and they just don't have, you know, like one of the challenges of, well, one of the many challenges of multi-system exploits is in, in using this as an example, the entities that are issuing these legal documents that provide identity and that verify identity, they're not losing any money. They're not losing you know, we think they're going to have someone upset, you know, that their identity was stolen and that their state DMV gave them, you know, a, or Department of Licensing gave them, you know, their driver's license in their name. But there's not a financial loss there. And we all know that if there isn't a financial loss, there's not a lot of motivation to fix it, even when there is a financial loss in a lot of cases. I mean, you guys know how much money your companies write off in fraud every year. Like, you know, it's not like it's zero. So, you know, it really has to hit a critical mass and it's not going to in a lot of ways. And then the other one, and this is the biggest one by far for retailers, and it's getting worse, I swear, every week. Um, we've seen it really, really grow in the last year, year and a half. And that is exploits on the shipping and mail carrier side. A lot of it is insiders um, or compromised employee logins uh, where they're changing the status of a shipping label. So all of a sudden, you know, at first the you look up that tracking ID and it says that the item was delivered. And then a week later, it says that the final destination is actually lost in transit or, you know, had to be uh, marked out because or lost because of a natural disaster or all kinds of things, right? Or other times and I've been hearing all kinds of crazy stories lately about, you know, people who are being hired on by uh, shipping carriers in all different countries, not just the US or North America, especially, you know, around the holidays, right? There's one very major uh, shipping carrier here in the US that has just recently announced this week that they'll be hiring 100,000 temps. Well, there are ads all over the place and all kinds of, you know, secret groups and forums saying, 
hey, go get a job working for this carrier. And, you know, you'll, yeah, you'll make like $20 an hour, $25 an hour. But the real money is once you have access, we're going to teach you how to swap shipping labels. We're going to show you, you know, how to identify packages, you know, and which ones are cell phones and which ones are laptops and which ones are the expensive things. And, you know, sure, the the warehouse or the distribution center might have video cameras. You know, when you go in and when you go out, you might have to go through a metal detector. But are they going to are they going to notice a stack of shipping labels that you just slap on? you know, items that are in route somewhere else. And all of a sudden it's a new tracking number going somewhere else. No, they're not. So no biggie. Or, you know, when you're in your truck, you just put these items over here or swap out boxes. I know I heard a story from a retailer not too long ago that, you know, said that they actually were able, because they have an investigations team, which I just have to highlight, they were able to work with a shipping uh, carrier and uh, learn that one of the drivers from their warehouse. So going outbound to customers would switch items in different boxes. So maybe somebody ordered, you know, three remote controls or video game controllers or something like that from, you know, a store that sells electronics. Mm -hmm. Well, the box might be a similar size as an iPhone. So they might just, you know, take out the iPhone and swap out, you know, one of the controls or whatever and put that in the iPhone box. And now they've got an iPhone and the person who ordered the iPhone paid for the iPhone is opening the box to find a remote control or for a streaming service or a, you know, a video game controller. So there's just so many things. And I'm not saying that the shipping carriers are not doing anything about it. I know some are really working hard as much as they can to do as much as they can to preserve the integrity of their shipping service. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's not their money, right? Because even if a retailer says, hey, you lost a package for our company, we had to refund this person because they didn't get the item or they were sending it back to our warehouse. And you know, it says that it was delivered to our warehouse, but we can't find any record of it here. All those things, we're going to file an insurance claim. Well, usually the highest amount that the insurance will pay out is like $100. It's really not much. So you've lost your item that you know had a cost of $800 and you had to pay out the victim or not the victim, the person claiming to be the victim the refund fraudster, you know, $1,200 for the item. So now you're out $2,000. That doesn't seem, well, it's not fair, right? And like I said, you know, before, I definitely believe that there are ways to identify it and to get enough data to be able to really understand the problem. That's not, you know, this episode isn't, you know, solely on refund fraud, but I did want to mention that that is by far the number one reason right now for refund fraud. The number one type of fraud is, really exploiting those carriers, you know, exploiting the access points, the different places, you know, the partnerships they've done with drugstores to pick up uh, packages. All of those things are just exploits where however many entities are involved, those are separate systems. Those are separate groups. They're not talking to each other. They're not sharing information about the people. You're not able to get access to the shipping carriers, you know, raw data to figure out, well, wait, is there some kind of an anomaly here? Like, are there lots of packages that go into this distribution center that don't go out or that, you know, go in and then there's new labels being created or what's that anomaly there? You can't do that if that's not your data. I mean, that is why I believe that investigations teams and, you know, teams that can really set aside time to build relationships with those companies are critical 
And a couple of the stories I just shared actually came from an investigations department of a large retailer. They you know, started with one person who was kind of investigating cases and trying to figure out the cause and you know track it down, whether it was for you know true fraud chargebacks or refund fraud when it started happening. And now they have a team of six in just one country. And then in another country, they have more because they realize, wow, when we have someone looking, when we have people looking at the whole picture and they're looking at how all of these attempts are related, they can really figure out what the root cause was and what was happening so that we can try to look for identifiers further upstream and not lose this money. And if you did not listen to my episode with Eric Bowles, I'm going to plug that again because he is so brilliant at starting investigations departments from scratch and pays for himself very quickly. And just honestly, is one of the best people I know at that job. So uh, Yahoo and AOL's loss is your gain. He was you know, part of a recent layoff there. And so I really want to see him honestly back in action because he really has had such an impact on literally putting uh, very major cyber criminals and organized crime syndicates, whether it's for payment fraud or other types of scams behind bars, which, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, we can't all say. Mm-hmm. So like I said, a lot of that comes from insiders and compromised employee logins. And oh, there's just so many ways that different roles within a shipping company can steal or change or alter labels for refund claims fraud. And there's others as well, but that's really the main one right now. And to anyone who is who has decided, oh, we're just going to ask for police reports and that's going to stop them. Well, yeah, it might have slowed it down for a little bit for refund claims. Okay, if you did have a package stolen from your porch or if this happened or that happened, you need to file a police report. But just be aware that it is very cheap in the fraud as a service marketplace to get fake police reports. Um Another good reason for an investigative department. I know another investigative department for a retailer, and there aren't that many of them. There certainly aren't as many as there should be. But they were able to kind of put their heads together and go, wait, can I see that one? Can I see this one? Wait, they're all different. And they say they're all from the same you know, the same area or whatever, and realizing that they're fake. It's a Band-Aid, but it's not going to be a long-term solution, unfortunately, because those can be forged. And it's just a lot of work to have to figure out, is this real? Is it not? And even if it is, right? okay, they file a police report. What does that mean? Um, That means that they aren't lying or just that they're willing to file a police report for your company, even though they are lying. Um, Maybe they won't file a real police report for all 27 companies, but if, you know, they want your items most, that's what they'll do. And because a lot of these people committing refund fraud are, you know, fencing these items and reselling them on local marketplaces, as well as online third party marketplaces, a lot of them are stocking up on their quote unquote supply for the holiday season right now, because they know that the demand will be in November and December, but they're committing refund fraud now. Uh, There's also some payment fraud with the same motives, because, you know, if they're committing fraud in November, December, they may not get the items in time to sell them for the best possible price that they can get. And with economies all over the world being stagnant and not as good as they have been in the past, there will be more consumers, there'll be way more demand for deals. And, you know, if you're getting an item for free, you can undercut your competition, which is the legitimate company, your company, and sell them for cheaper, sometimes below cost. 
So those are just, you know, some of the things, you know, there's also going to be, you know, a lot of temps in uh, the carriers and everything else. So I just, you know, really wanted to, you know, highlight those things. What you can do is really going to vary based on, you know, which cause is impacting your company most. I'm a firm believer, obviously, and, you know, knowing the problem is half the battle, knowing that it's possible. And that's why I share what I can on the podcast when I can. But I think one of the best things that anyone can do is, you know, even if your you know company is about to be in peak season with you know code freezes, right? One thing that I think is critical to do, and I it, unfortunately it's a step that we all too often miss, and I've talked about this before in previous episodes because it's important. But take time to communicate to your leadership, measure the impacts, measure hey, this is where we're at. This is how much we lost. This is what we're tracking. This is what we're trying to work on. Here, our false positives have gone up, or at least our you know decline rate has gone up. Our approvals are going down. So there's got to be false declines in here. The accuracy is wrong. Here's why we think the accuracy is being impacted. I always do this for my clients when I do discovery is not only pulling together metrics and KPIs to really measure the health of the company in different ways, but insisting on delivering it to someone in the C-suite. Because if they're able and when, especially when it, it is presented to them in a way that talks about the impact to the business and how this impacts conversion and how this impacts lifetime value of customers and all those other pieces you get it. It's really important. You just cannot undervalue how important it is to get that buy-in and to get them to maybe understand it. And sometimes you might have to go back to the basics and start with, this is why fraud matters to our company. This is what fraud looks like to our company. These are all the different ways that people have found to steal from us. And here's how much it costs. And here's how much, you know, for every $1 of fraud, this is how much we lose. And you know, here's what we're trying, but it doesn't come in blinking red lights. It doesn't say alert, alert, this is a fraud order. So we have to rely on different signals of the partners we're using. And some of our partners aren't, you know, collecting signals in the right way or, you know, whatever that might be. So, you know, take that time to measure the impacts, explain what's happening and why. Explain to them, hey, it's going up and here are some of the reasons why. This is what we're doing, but it's not working. We're starting to be, we're on the early warning system for this program or, you know, whatever that is, so that they're aware of it before they get a letter from one of the card brands saying that you're on the, you know, excessive chargeback monitoring list or, you know, the excessive fraud monitoring list or something like that. And then, you know, for ongoing, right, whether it's just, well, you could start it through peak season, but it should be yearly or honestly all year long is, you know, provide a monthly report uh, to leadership, senior leadership, especially, and then host one to two calls a month for cross-functional teams. Explain what's happening. You can never un- undervalue uh, or never overvalue, I guess I should say, uh, the power of collaboration internally, uh, not just externally, but a lot of times the fraud department will say, hey, we're starting to see this type of trend and customer service will say, oh, I wonder if that's related to the fact that we're seeing a lot of influx of chat activity asking this, or I wonder if that's related to this affiliate over here. There's so many pieces, right? When you're only looking at one piece of the puzzle, you're not going to be able to know how they all fit together. And it's just in general, it's much better to get ahead of this uh, now and explain what's happening, you know, growth and volume, sophistication and fraud, all of that, than waiting until, you know, you have to answer an angry email about why the company didn't meet their goals for the holiday season or didn't meet their goals for the end of Q4 for whatever reason. I'm just, I have seen the power of this working. I have seen how much 
autonomy and how much visibility and appreciation this gives fraud leadership, whether it's because I came in and said, hey, give me all your information. I'm going to put it together in you know a way that I think your leadership will understand. And then you know we'll present it together and then say, well, here are our suggestions or because they've done it themselves. So it's just such an important component that I don't think we always focus on. We first focus on, okay, what's the fix? What's the technology? What's the piece? And those are important. But if we're assuming that the rest of the business knows how important we are, but we're not telling them what we're doing or that we care or anything else, you're going to lose it. And this gives you authority on it, right? It shows that you care. It shows that you're proactive. It makes them really value your perspective on the company and on the customers and value your input. And, you know, even if you're just, if the purpose of the meeting or the document is, you know, whatever you're sharing, the reporting and the metrics that you're sharing, if the purpose is just to give information, still have one to two things that you think would really help because oftentimes they'll ask you, well, what would be, how would, could we fix this? Or what ideas do you have? Or, you know, what can we do? Well, there's this policy that we have over here. And if we just change that, or, you know, if we had an escalation uh, process for customer service to forward any refund requests over this amount, or, you know, that have this or this in it to my team, that would be helpful or whatever that is, right, for the problems you're having. But I just I think it's a real missed opportunity. And I always go back to the results of the Fraudology Benchmarking Survey this year, where we just saw that, you know, the people who are taking to the time to communicate to their leadership about what's going on, about their efforts, about the impacts and all of that, they're the ones who feel appreciated and valued within their company. So data doesn't lie. People lie, data doesn't. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, I fit in almost an hour on this, uh, no surprise, but uh, I hope that was helpful. I'm sure, like I said, some of it was review, but maybe just hearing it in a different way or a different context made you go, oh, I wonder if that's part of why we've been seeing this or that. So, and at the end of the day, misery loves company. And for those of you who are miserable and overwhelmed with high volume and higher sophisticated fraud, well, know that you are in good company because you're not alone. And hopefully we will weather this storm. I will always believe in the power of good over all of this. However, even no matter how overwhelming it feels sometimes. All right, that's it for me this week, but I will look forward to speaking with you again soon next week. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.